Daniel chapter 7 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, I ask you to turn there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one provided for you in the pew there. I encourage you to take that. And again, let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is the first part of the second section of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. Uh, Daniel is relating to us mostly uh, history. He's relating to us things that had happened throughout the course of his life. And now we have a switch. In the first six chapters, Daniel was writing in the third person. Now he begins to write in the first person as he begins this directive of visions and dreams that he had and as he relates them to God's people. I hope that you recall in the beginning of this study, we talked about how the first part of this book was written in Chaldean in the language of the Babylonians uh, because it was directed more towards them. And the latter half of this book, which we begin here, uh, is written in Hebrew because it's an encouragement to God's people. And that encouragement is going to be found throughout the remainder of this book, as we've seen even from the very beginning, again directed towards the power and the sovereignty of God. Uh, Daniel is coming to the end of his uh, time in, in Babylon uh, as he is writing part of this. And as he comes there, he understands and realizes he's seen God's hand in sovereignty through the midst of all this. He's watched God do everything that God promised he would do for his people. Uh, he had watched God deliver him and his four friends out of various trials and tribulations throughout that time, even in the midst of wickedness and idolatry, even in the midst of a kingdom that was put there by God, allowed to rule and reign by God, but not subject to God as far as their unbelief that they were subject to God. Everyone is subject to God. But Daniel is going to write these things, and you'll find as we read through this passage this morning that even though he doesn't fully understand it, what God is doing is presenting to Daniel a encouragement for the Jewish people to look forward and to understand what was going to be happening in the time of the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus Christ, when those days would come to pass. And you remember, this is something that the Jewish people have longed for, right? They're, they're waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. Ever since Genesis, when God there in the garden gave what we call the, the proto-evangelon, the first declaration of the gospel, uh, when he told Adam and Eve, he said, you know, the, the, the serpent was going to be cursed to walk on the ground, and he said, uh, you will crush, your seed will crush his head and he will bruise his heel. That was the proclamation that there was one coming, that Jesus was coming to be the one who would defeat the power of sin, death, hell, and the grave. And ever since that point, when God began to proclaim, I'm going to send a Messiah, the Jewish people had looked for and longed for the arrival of this Messiah. And so this is going to be an instruction to them. Uh, this story here that Daniel relates about this vision is now a flashback. And uh, you recall, too, that when we began this study through this book, I said that oftentimes what we're going to find is Daniel is not presenting everything in a chronological order. He bounces around a lot. Uh, he'll tell something, and then he'll bounce back a little while, and he'll go back to the future, back to the past, back to the future, back to the past. And what we find here in Daniel chapter 7 is a vision that God gave to Daniel right around the first year of Belshazzar the king. So this is the material that's covered in chapters uh, 5 and 6. And what's interesting about this vision is that it closely parallels, and you'll see it as we read the passage in just a moment, it closely parallels the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. 
You remember that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of this great golden statue uh, with the golden head and then the, the bronze and then the iron, this statue that represented these different kingdoms of the world. So pay attention to that in just a moment as we read this. The difference is, though, that in chapter 2, that vision was presented from man's perspective, how man looks at the world and at the world's kingdoms. Man looks at the world's and the world's kingdoms and is impressed by their power, their prestige, their military might, their accomplishments. So as one would look at this statue, you're, you're impressed by its, its grandiose figure. But what we're going to find is in chapter 7, those same four kingdoms are presented, but now we're looking at those kingdoms in light of God's perspective. And God sees the kingdoms of this world completely different then we see the kingdoms of this world. We're tempted to look at the great power and might and be threatened or be, uh, be pushed back by them. God looks down and sees them as nothing but brute creatures because he controls and he rules over it all. If you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read uh, down through verse 15 this morning. We're going to... Uh, most likely cover the entire chapter this morning, what you'll find is in verse 15, um, Daniel really just relays the interpretation of the dream, which actually we're going to cover uh, most of that through the first part of these first 15 verses. But Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he laid on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat." After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire." A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. 
and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. You can be seated this morning. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes this morning about Daniel's disturbing dream. We find there in verse 15 that this dream disturbs Daniel. He, he is taken aback by the things that he sees. Now, as we read that this morning, I'm sure that you understand that what Daniel dreamed is, is very clear. It's easy to understand. I'm sure all of you, as we read through this passage this morning, clearly understood exactly what Daniel was referring to as he talked about these beasts and the little horn and the ten horns and everything else that happened. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious there, purposely because we need to understand a couple of things as we venture into this chapter. What we have to be very careful of when it comes to passages such as this, and we'll discover this later on when we go through the book of Revelation, is there are oftentimes things that God could have given very clearly, but He doesn't give very clearly. He could have just related to Daniel and said, okay, after Babylon will come the Medo-Persian Empire, and then will come Greece, and then will come Rome, and here's who all the rulers will be. But sometimes God speaks to us very vaguely. And, and again, the point of this was not to give this very specific interpretation of what was going to happen in the future. Again, because the purpose of this was to encourage God's people in the arrival of the Messiah and the things that they were going to be walking through in that season. Now, the one benefit that we have that Daniel didn't is we get to look back at history. And so it makes it a little easier for us than it was for Daniel to understand the things that are taking place here, because now we can look back because all of these things or many of these things have happened, and we can see how they fit into the narrative of world history. But the one thing that we want to think about this morning is that when it comes to Daniel chapter 7 and a lot of the passages that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, there are a lot of theories as to what these things mean even amongst the different camps of, of eschatological positions, whether you're uh, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, historist, futurist, um, or, or, or anywhere along the line, even amongst those camps, there are a variety of opinions. We don't have time this morning, nor would it be beneficial to endeavor into every single position, um, because, again, some of this is just based on the very best of what we can do in looking at this in context. Uh, we want to avoid the temptation to, to see what is not there. Oftentimes when it comes to prophecy, uh, you'll hear people begin to read things into the text that aren't really there. We want to endeavor to do this as plainly and as simply as we can while still being clear. And then finally, as we've talked about all the way through the book of Daniel, context, context, context. Right? When Daniel was writing this letter, when he was encouraging or seeking going to encourage God's people, what was God's purpose, and how would those to whom this letter was written, how would they have understood it? Uh, we, we talked about that a lot in Matthew chapter 24, uh, there at the Olivet Discourse, when we talked about the word generation. When Jesus is speaking to these people, when he's speaking to his disciples, what would they have understood him to mean? comes to the same thing when we come here to the book of Daniel. It will be the same thing when we get to the book of, the Revel book of Revelation. I'll give you a preview there. John says there in the beginning chapters of the book of Revelation, writing about these things which shall soon come to pass. That word soon is an important word. If I were to tell you today there's something getting ready to happen soon, what are you going to think that means? Do I mean soon or do I mean soon as in thousands and thousands and thousands of years from now? It should be clear in context. So with that said, let's begin to look at this dream. Daniel here is writing again in the first year of Belshazzar the king. And 
all of the other things going on, Daniel begins to write down this dream. It's interesting. Daniel has been the one who has been relied upon to interpret dreams. He's been the one who's been called in before the kings to interpret the visions and the dreams that they had. Now, here Daniel is having a dream himself. And what's interesting about this dream is that this one who's been called in to interpret all the other people's dreams now has trouble interpreting his own dream. He's struggling with the concept of what it is he's looking at. Now, we're we're really not going to break this up into certain points um, as we go through this because it's really just one big, long uh, explanation of a dream. So we're just going to kind of look at the different parts of this um, as we walk through these verses. So I want you to notice there first in Daniel chapter, verse 2, Daniel talks about that he saw four winds of heaven which were stirring up the great sea. Now, in our minds, we can picture what this looks like. All of us have either uh, seen a storm upon the ocean before, or we've seen uh, videos of it, and you know how the winds out at sea can can cause the waves to to get very, very, very high, even perhaps far more than our imagination can conceive if you've never been there to see it firsthand. But, But, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet high waves can be driven up by the wind out there on the sea. And what Daniel here is seeing is a picture of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, the great sea is this, the godliness and the instability uh, of the world, the, the godliness and the instability of these great kingdoms of the world that are just whipping up all the time. They're just stirring up this great tempest and this great storm, and the four winds of heaven are coming out and, again, demonstrating God's control over these events. The waves cannot control themselves. The waves are being controlled by the Lord, and even though they are stirring up and being very destructive, again, they're still underneath the sovereignty and the power of God. Over and over in this chapter, we, we see this, and I'll, I'll make reference to it each time because we, we need to see it each time that it's mentioned, how clearly God demonstrates that He is the one who's in control of the powers of this world, no matter whether they are good powers or bad powers, no whether they are great leaders or horrible leaders. God is the one who's in control of every single one. And brothers and sisters, that, that should even now in our time, bring such deep encouragement to us. Because as we look around in the world, there's a lot of political and military instability in the world. We can look at what's happening in the Middle East, but we can just look at what's happening in our own country. There's a lot that we can be concerned about. But what brings us hope is to understand that despite what our political leadership may do, what might happen now and what may happen five years from now, None of that is happening outside of the authority and permission of God. He is the one who establishes our rulers. He is the one who raises them up, and he is the one who will take them down according to his providence and his plan. So we trust in that. We rely upon that. Now notice here in the middle of the sea, it says there were four beasts that were coming up, and they were different from one another. Each beast is a representative of the four kingdoms, the same four kingdoms that we saw in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had that vision of the statue. Notice the first one there in verse 4 was like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. Now this first one represents Babylon. It represents that land in which Daniel finds himself. Now, the lion was a very majestic creature, so was the eagle. If you think about it, most of the time, a lot of countries have either the lion or the eagle as representatives of their nation. Our country has the eagle as a representative because it's a majestic creature. It's a creature that's very regal. It's one that we would look to and and think that is um, representative of great strength and power and prowess. It's interesting that Jeremiah 
referred to Nebuchadnezzar as a lion in his book, and Ezekiel referred to Nebuchadnezzar as an eagle. So we can understand that this here is a very clear reference to the nation of Babylon. Now notice there that this great majestic eagle, it says that its wings were plucked from it. Now, what does this represent? This represents a humbling, right? If you have an eagle and you pluck all of its wings out, what's this eagle going to be able to do? Nothing, right? It can't fly anymore. It can't be this majestic creature that it was made to be. So what we see here is a representation of when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. Remember, he was great in his own mind and his own power and strength, but God humbled him by casting him out into the wilderness and making him walk and act like a beast for a season. So here Nebuchadnezzar is being humbled. He says it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a human mind was given to it. Because you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar after that season of time. God restored him. He gave him his sanity back to him. Nebuchadnezzar recognized the truthness, the truthfulness of who God was and he repented. So now we see here this picture of Babylon as this first beast, Nebuchadnezzar's humbling and his raising back up. But then a second beast showed up. And notice this beast, he says, one that resembled a bear. Now, a bear, again, is a very powerful creature, but we would have to admit a bear is somewhat less powerful than a lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. It's the king of the animal world. But now here's a bear. Now, this bear represented the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the empire that had overcome Babylon and became the ruler of that region. Now, notice this bear says that it was raised up on one side. Now, commentators are in a various disagreement on on why the bear is raised up on one side. Um, I tend to think um, that it refers to the instability of the kingdom. The Medo-Persian Empire was a unified empire, but there was a lot of disturbance in that during its period of time. It was very unstable. It was not a very cohesive government. And if you think about a bear kind of being raised up on one side, it speaks to the instability there. Now, it says, interestingly, that there were three ribs in its mouth. Now, these three ribs represent kingdoms that this empire had already devoured, something they had already eaten. And before the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, they had already conquered three other countries, including Egypt and a couple of others. So they had already taken over these. They already had them in their mouth. Now, notice what it says here, though. It says that they were commanded to arise and devour much meat. This kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, continued to overtake other regions around that area as they continued to grow. But there's something interesting we find here that we're going to see here and repeated in the next verse is that a command is given to it to arise and devour much meat. Now, how many of you think that if you have a bear in the wilderness, you have to tell the bear to get up and eat? Right? You don't have to tell a bear to eat. It just does what's natural to it. So why here is this instruction given to this bear representing this empire to get up and devour much meat? Because again, it's referring to the divine control and authority of God over these nations. This nation was powerful. It conquered many other great nations of its time, but it could not do these things without the divine permission and the direction of God. It was God who was controlling these nations. So when it was time for this nation to move, God said, go, do what you are going to do. He allowed those things to happen. It was under his divine authority and power. A third beast came. Notice it says, behold, verse 6, another one like a leopard, which had on its backs four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. If you recall in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, we know that the first one was Babylon. The second part of the statue was the Medo-Persian Empire. The third part of the statue was Greece. And again, we find there, this is what this third beast is. 
is the nation of Greece underneath the conquest, the Greek empire underneath the conquest of Alexander the Great. Now, leopard is known for its swiftness and its cunningness, its agility. It's a very fast animal. It's able to do things very quickly. It's very strong and powerful. And this was, again, the empire of Alexander the Great. The four wings also symbolize swiftness. So everything about this beast speaks to its speed and its agility. And the reason for that is, is that Alexander the Great, in the short period of time, was able to build such a vast empire that stretched from Europe all the way over um, into uh, Southeast Asia. This vast empire that Alexander the Great was able to do. And again, he was able to do this only by the permission of God. Dominion was given to it. It didn't take it. It was given to it. And what's interesting is that when Alexander... um, conquered the Persians. The Persians had some 600,000 men in their army, and Alexander conquered them with only 30,000 men. Now, how do you have 30,000 conquering 600,000, if not again, the demonstration of it is God who raises up kingdoms and God who causes kingdoms to fall? Now, we've gone through the first three of these fairly quickly because Daniel does. Daniel comes to this, and he comes to verse 7, and it's now in verse 7 where something different happens. Notice that he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, had large iron teeth it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, this beast is so grotesque, so vicious looking, so destroying looking, that Daniel can't even find an earthly animal to describe it by. There's no description. We had a description of a lion, of an eagle, of a bear, of a leopard, of the wings of birds. But now Daniel comes to this fourth beast, and there's nothing on earth that he can think of to describe what this animal looks like. All he can tell us is that it is dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Now, notice in verse 4, when he says that this one animal was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle, he doesn't describe that beast as dreadful or terrifying. I don't know about you, but a lion with wings seems kind of strange to me. Uh, When he talks about a leopard with four wings, he doesn't describe it as dreadful or terrifying, even though it had great power. But there's something about this fourth beast that Daniel is unable to turn away from. And you're going to notice this later on when Daniel seeks the interpretation of this dream. The one that he's the most concerned about is this fourth beast, because something stands out about this fourth beast that Daniel is unable to turn his eyes away from. The power of it, the strength of it, the ability of it, and the terrifying nature of it causes him to be fixed upon it. Now, this nation represents, or this beast represents the nation of Rome. Now, we understand from history the the power and the might that the nation and the empire of Rome had. It conquered, it ruled with an iron fist. The, The Caesars of Rome, the rulers of this kingdom, were very fierce, were very detrimental to anyone they came into contact with, and they crushed people without any consideration. Of, of humanity. They just did what they were going to do in order to gain more strength and more power. That's what's represented there in the, the iron teeth. It, it could crush and devour anything that it wanted to, and whatever was left, that it would trample with its feet. Now, notice here it says that it was different from all the other beasts because it had ten horns. Now, this is the same beast 
that's referred to us in Revelation chapter 13, uh, when it talks about the beast who comes out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems and blasphemous names. But it's also representative, uh, uh, what it represents to us is that these ten horns are ten kings, and that's also going to be relayed to us later on this chapter. Now, if we start with Julius Caesar, there are ten emperors that rule in Rome up until the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So starting with Julius, you have Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, uh, Claudia, Claudius, uh, Nero, uh, Gallica, Otho, Vitalis, and Vespasian. Now, so there are our ten horns. Now again, I'm going to try to give this to you as as briefly but as, as clearly as we can. So as Daniel sees this beast representing Rome, it has ten horns. And of these ten horns, these are ten kings. These are ten of the Roman emperors, the the Caesars, who reigned from this period of time when Julius Caesar and the nation of Rome came into exist until the time of AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Now, you'll hear us talk a lot more about that as we come into the coming weeks because there is something very significant about the destruction of the temple there in AD 70. And what's going to happen to God's people in the midst of that again, is why God is writing this to Daniel to prepare the hearts of God's people for the events that are going to happen when the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. So as Daniel continues watching there in verse 8, something else happens. As as grotesque and as as mean as this creature looked to be, with all these ten horns, as he stands there and watches, he says, Behold, another horn, a little one comes up from among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So a third horn, or a little horn, rises up and begins to root out three of the other horns. Now, who is this little horn? Now, some commentators say that it's uh, Antichius Epiphanes, who was the ruler of Syria, in AD, or excuse me, in 167 BC, he comes in and desecrates the temple. Now, Daniel's going to talk about that in our next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 9. However, if we look at the application of what this beast represented, we look again now amongst those ten horns, amongst those ten emperors, who could this little horn be? And it points, I believe, to Nero. Now, Nero was one of the emperors who we know was the one who persecuted the church so severely. He is the one who's ruling and reigning in the time uh, of uh, right before the destruction of the temple. Now, why is it that this would be so specifically referring to Nero? It goes to the point of the three horns that are pulled out by the roots before it. Because in order for Nero to take the throne, three other emperors had to be assassinated in order for him to come to the throne. Now, we're going to come back to that again in just a minute, but just pause that in your mind, that if it were not for these three other emperors being assassinated, Nero would have never been able to be the emperor of of the Roman Empire. So, large beast, ugly, evil, terrifying, ten horns, a little horn comes up, outroots three of those. Daniel is just, again, standing in utter amazement, but something happens in verse 9 because now his attention is called away from these four beasts to a different place. 
And notice in verse 9, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. In the midst of all of these beasts, in the midst of all of this destruction, now Daniel's attention is called to a different place, and he's called to see who other but God himself seated on his throne. The Ancient of Days the one who rules and reigns over it all. I love what it says there. It says the ancient of days took his seat. Now, why is that important? Because God is never taken by surprise. You think about military leaders in the midst of battle, in the midst of difficulty and things that are going on. Most times they're probably not sitting down. They're probably up walking around fretting about what's going to happen next, trying to figure out what their next step would be, calling up their other commanders on the phone, trying to figure out what they need to do next. But the king of all the earth, the angel of days, just sits on his throne because he's not worried about what's going to happen because he already knows what's going to happen. He's not concerned when, when one military power begins to rise up because he already knew it was going to happen. He foreordained it to happen. It is in the midst of his sovereign plan. So here sits God himself on the throne. And so there's some descriptors here about what he looks like, that his clothing or his vesture was white like snow, which speaks to his splendor and his purity. Uh, there is no other like him. He is the one who is totally pure, totally righteous. It says his hair was like pure wool. That speaks to his righteousness in judgment. When God begins to issue forth judgments, none can speak against him. Nothing can question God in his judgments. There's no one who can stand up before God and say, yeah, God, but did you know this? Or but God, or, or wait a minute, God, no one can do that because he is totally righteous in his judgments. He never makes a mistake. There's not a judge on this earth. There are many good judges who rule over different kinds of cases and precedents, but there is not one judge on this earth who is totally righteous. There's only one, and that is the Ancient of Days, the King, our King of Kings. It says his throne was ablaze with flames. This speaks to his majesty and judgment. It talks about that the wheels of his throne were like a burning fire, similar to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. And verse 10 tells us that a river of fire was flowing out and coming before him. And this speaks to God's fury of justice and wrath going out and bringing it to pass. Because God doesn't just speak judgment. He causes that judgment to actually take place. It's not just a word that's echoing out and just kind of, uh, we'll see if it happens. No, when God speaks judgment, when God speaks truth, it will come to pass. So this river is flowing out of him. Psalm chapter 50 verses 3 and 4 tells us, May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and is very temptuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. God speaks here in power and judgment. And this is what Daniel is watching because he's watched all of these nations, all of these beasts rise up and do what they wanted to do. But yet now here is the Ancient of Days seated on his throne in power and in judgment over all of these nations. Now think about what an encouragement that would have been to Daniel, and also, brothers and sisters, what an encouragement it is to us, is that no matter what happens in the world, God is going to ensure that justice is accomplished. We may see things happen on this earth, and we think that people get away with what they've done. And there are times, in an earthly sense, people do get away with it, right? They, they, they escape justice on this earth, but they will never escape the justice of God. They will never escape his power and his wrath as he comes to do what he has said he was going to do. And before 
the, the ancient of days, there were thousands upon thousands, just speaks to an innumerable number. And this speaks to the people of God, the picture of the triumph of God, that God is the one who's going to rule and reign, and all of those who are standing before him are worshiping. Now look at verse 11. As Daniel continues to watching, he kept hearing the sound of this little horn. It was speaking words of blasphemy. And so he kept looking, and we'll come back to the little horn in just a second, so don't, don't worry, we'll, we're going to come back to it. And he says, he kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed. As Daniel kept watching, he saw this fourth beast finally destroyed and given place to the fire. This is the destruction of not only Nero himself, but of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was finally brought to its knees as the church of God continued to grow. And all of those regions, or most of those regions that the Roman Empire had ruled, would eventually see the spread of the gospel and the spread of the church continue into those places. So this once great empire that had so severely persecuted and pushed back the church, as it fell, it saw the thing that it had sought to oppose spread into those areas and take those areas for the glory of God. Daniel continued to watching, and it's interesting that he saw first this fourth beast destroyed. Now he watches the other beasts, their dominion being taken away. He watches the fall of this great, mighty Roman Empire. And as he watched, he saw that God's kingdom continued to grow upon the earth. Now, again, we find another place here, that second part of verse 12, where it talks about an extension of life granted to them for a pointed period of time where commentators are, are in a, a variety of disagreements on this point. Uh, most seem to point to the idea that the influences of some of those remaining kingdoms still existed even during the time of the Roman Empire and afterwards, uh, that there were still some influences of the Babylonians, of the Medo-Persians, of the Greeks that still continued to influence, but only for a period of time that as the gospel began to grow on the earth, those even were pushed back and and, continue, or, and eventually were destroyed. Now, Daniel comes to verse 13. He had just witnessed this amazing vision of the glory of God on the throne, and now he finds himself again looking, and now comes one, he says, in the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, I hope you recognize that phrase there in verse 13. One like a son of man. Daniel here is witnessing the glory and the power and the rule and the reign of Jesus himself. Now, that phrase, son of man, is the one that Jesus chose himself to call himself throughout the New Testament. It's used 69 times in the Synoptic Gospels. It's used 12 times in John alone. And so why did Jesus choose such a phrase as, as the Son of Man to refer to himself? We'll notice a couple of things. Is that Jesus, in calling himself the Son of Man, is demonstrating his identity with us, that he is fully God and fully man. Now, it's, he is fully God, but he talks about there, when Jesus refers to himself, he doesn't say a son of man. He says the son of man. 
So he's demonstrating that as a man, he identifies with us as human beings, but he's also demonstrating that he is the son of man. He is the one above all the others. So he's deifying himself. But the second reason that Jesus used this phrase is because every other reference to the Messiah that people would have recognized had a large list of connotations associated with it. If you remember back in our study in the Gospels, the Jewish people had been awaiting for the arrival of the Messiah. But what they expected was a Messiah who was going to come in with an army and overthrow the nation of Rome and take back the kingdom on this earth in that period of time in a very visible, militaristic type of event. So that's what they were looking for. They were looking for a mighty warrior, not a meek and mild servant that Jesus came as. And Jesus understood this. He knew that every other phrase, if he called himself any other word that had been used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, all the Jewish people were already going to have their own idea of what that word means. So Jesus here comes to Daniel and he uses this phrase, a son of man. This is where Jesus plucked this phrase from. And he uses that because it's a word that had not often been used to describe the arrival of Messiah, but it was a word that he could use and they therefore create his own definition of who the Messiah was as he was truly the Son of God and the Son of Man. So here Daniel is seeing this perspective. He's seeing this. Now, what is this talking about the clouds of heaven? Well, this is referring to what we find in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. You remember that? And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up into you heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. So here Daniel is seeing a picture of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Jesus has already died. He's crucified. He's risen. Now he has ascended into heaven. Daniel is watching this happen, and he comes before the Ancient of Days. He comes before God, and God is going to do something and give something to Jesus here in this moment. And what is those things, or what is that thing that he gives to Jesus here in this moment? Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Remember the end there of the model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples? And thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This kingdom was given to Christ by God after his resurrection and ascension. Now, we've talked about this multiple times through different studies that we've done, that Jesus' kingdom is not a future kingdom. The total picture of that kingdom will be seen in his return when he physically returns and sets and, and is physically present here with us on this earth. But this kingdom is a kingdom that is already established. It's a kingdom that is already he rules and reigns over. It's a kingdom that he's already in power and authority over. And how do we understand that? Well, let's go to a few passages of Scripture. Right? Well, first off, we see here in Daniel chapter 14 that as Jesus comes into heaven after his ascension, that he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all men might serve him, an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. But what did Jesus say to his disciples there in Matthew chapter 28? We looked at this a couple of months ago, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and where? On the earth. Go therefore and make disciples. My friends, if Jesus is not ruling and reigning right now, then we have no power and authority to do those things which he's commanded us to do. 
He said to go and to preach the gospel. Why? Because he had been given all power and authority in heaven and on the earth. Psalm chapter 72. It says, May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by it. Let all nations call him blessed. A dominion that lasts forever and will not pass away. That means there's no end to God's kingdom. There's never going to come a time on the face of this earth when Christ's kingdom will not exist. Babylon rose and fell. The Medo-Persian Empire rose and fell. Greece rose and fell. Rome, as vast and as powerful as it was, rose and fell. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ has risen and it will never fall. It will never be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, what hope this is to us, that we are a part of a kingdom which will not go anywhere. No matter what the enemy tries to do, no matter how hard he tries to push back, no matter how hard he tries to fight against the kingdom of God, it will not fall. Now, this does not mean that we don't walk through seasons. Just as any great empire has seen, when Rome or any of these other countries, when they went out, there were times where at certain battles they were pushed back. But that did not mean that they did not have great power and strength. And we need to understand that as Christians, we are not called to a life of ease. We're called to a life of war. We're called to a life of battle. And there are going to be times and seasons in, in our life as individuals, in our life as a church, and, and in our era of Christianity that we live, that we're going to see those same ebbs and flows. The church of Jesus Christ was established there at Pentecost, and there was this great outpouring of God's power. Revival had broken out. Thousands of people were being saved. The church exploded. And then what happened? The church suffered under persecution. But then after that, the church blossomed again. And then there were more seasons of persecution. And then the church blossomed again. And you look all throughout the course of redemptive history, this is what you see, that God is a God that operates in the cyclical. And what I mean by that is you can see this cycle, just as you see every year, the spring, the summer, the fall, and the winter. We see the same thing in the picture of church history. There are times when the gospel is bursting forth and God is moving in powerful ways. And there are times when persecution comes and it seems to push everything back. But if you look again at the whole course of history, oftentimes, especially as Americans, we're too tempted to look at what's happening with blinders on. And all we can see is what's happening just right in front of us. And you can hear this today, brothers and sisters. All you have to do is, is turn on almost any Christian network and everything is doom and gloom, right? It's like, oh, look at how bad the world is. Look at what's going on. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. Look at what's happening. And why is that? Because everything that we do oftentimes is we're looking at Christianity from an American perspective. Right now, the gospel is booming in places like China, places like Southeast Asia, and in Africa. The gospel is going forth like it's never gone forth before. We're so tempted to look at it just because we see the church being pushed back in America, we're tempted to think that we're just going to just sell everything, lock the doors, and go home, right? We might as well give up. But God is moving. When we step back, we see this big picture. And the reason that Daniel here is writing this from the, from the hand of God is God wants his people to be encouraged that no matter what season you're walking through, understand that this is a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. It will not pass away. 
Nothing is going to cause this kingdom to cease to exist. So even in the midst of difficulty, keep pushing forward because the kingdom is everlasting. And it says it's one that will not be destroyed. What did Jesus say? He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means, now oftentimes I think that, view, that verse is misconstrued. Oftentimes I think what we have a picture of is that we have the church and that the church is kind of like we've, we've barricaded the doors and hell's beating down on us from the outside, but as bad as it may be, the gates of hell will not prevail. I look at it from a different perspective. I look at it from the perspective is that the Christians are at the gates of hell. And we're beating it down. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are not on the defensive. We are on the offensive. Because we have a kingdom that is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. We have a message that is more powerful than the message of darkness. We have something that has been given to us. Now, there are times and seasons we will see. We're not evaporating those things away, but we are encouraged by this knowledge that God's kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Let me end this morning. We don't have time, otherwise I'd keep you at 2 o'clock. We don't have time to finish this morning. We'll pick this up next week. Daniel chapter 15 is, or Daniel, excuse me, verse 15 is where Daniel now gets this interpretation of, of this dream. And he repeats some of, of what we find in the opening verses, but there's a little bit more that we can delve into. But I want to close this morning with this quote from Matthew Henry as he talks about this dominion and kingdom and glory that we find here in verse 14. Henry describes it as this way, an everlasting kingdom. His dominion shall not pass away to any successor, much less to any invader, and his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. Even the gates of hell or the informal powers and policies shall not prevail against it. The church shall continue militant to the end of time and triumphant to the endless ages of eternity. This vision is an encouragement to the people of Israel, but it's an encouragement to us as well that we know how all of this ends that we know that God is the victor. And that in the moments of when it seems like all things are being pushed back, that we have great hope and reliance in trusting in His sovereign power. God is going to do what He has chosen to do. We may not understand it always, but we can trust it because we know the ultimate outcome, that we will rule and reign alongside of Him that he is going to accomplish all things for his good, for his glory, and his power. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time. Lord, I know in my own heart this week, I have been uh, both challenged and encouraged by this chapter uh, to see, Father, how your sovereign power has been so clearly demonstrated throughout history in the fact that you revealed these things to Daniel far before they ever all came to pass, and they did come to pass. But how you have demonstrated, even through these kingdoms, Lord, that you were the one who caused them to rise and fall. History would look back and say, look at how great Alexander was. And they would put it all on him, that his conquest and his power was all about his ability and strength. But Father, it was all because you just allowed it to happen. Alexander could have not have conquered his own backyard. 
if it were not for your operation in his life. You used him. As wicked and as evil as as some of these emperors and kings could be, Father, you used them for your purpose and for your glory. And we find encouragement in that, Lord, as we look around even in our own time. We know that the prophetic sometimes has a, a, an accomplishment when it came to happen, but it also can have a future application as well. And that we see in that future application, Lord, we see your hand of providence even in our own lives. Lord, I'm so encouraged to see the operation of your hand in bringing Christ to this earth. That, Lord, there was this pivotal moment for this period of time when you, even before the foundation of the earth, had ordained that it was the time for Christ to come. Lord, we don't know why it wasn't a thousand years earlier or why it wasn't a thousand years later. All we know is that you had appointed this particular time for Christ to come, for him to live, for him to suffer, for him to die. And all of this interwoven, interwoven, Father, into the thread, Lord, of your sovereignty, Lord, all of this operating. And, and, and Father, I, I, I know that over and over, I seemed uh, in my own mind sound like a broken record. But I just can't pull myself away from what a beautiful picture this book is of, of that aspect of who you are. Of your sovereign nature. And Lord, that it encouraged Daniel and the believers there in Babylon. And Lord, how much it should encourage our own hearts. That we remind ourselves of this every day. Because many of us in this room this morning, we're in a place where things are are pretty good for us. We have a job, we have families, we have a warm place to sleep. Things around us in this world are, are seemingly okay, at least in our, in our local context. There's uh, no destruction, there's no fear of persecution. We're able to do all the things that we want to do and, and do them freely. But Lord, we know that things can change and oftentimes can change very quickly. And if we don't have cemented in our hearts, Lord, this deep trust and resolve in your power and your control of all the events of this life, Lord, we will find ourselves in deep despair. So, Father, if nothing else comes from this study, Lord, may it be that we just more firmly commit in our hearts to trust in your providence, and your sovereignty. Lord, Father, God, our hearts together as we come to your table. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.